Part Five, Chapter Thirteen of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Dole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Thirteen. Count Ilya Andreyitch took his young ladies to the Countess Buzakaya's. The reception was fairly well attended, but the most of the company were strangers to Natasha. Count Ilya Andreyitch saw with dissatisfaction that the larger majority of those present consisted of men and women noted for their free and easy behavior. Mademoiselle Georges stood in one corner of the drawing-room surrounded by young men. There were a number of Frenchmen, and among them Mitivier, who since Ellen's arrival had become an intimate at her house. Count Ilya Andreyitch decided not to take a hand at the card-table, or to leave the girls, but to take his departure as soon as Mademoiselle Georges had finished her recitation. Anatole was at the door, evidently on the lookout for the Rostovs. As soon as he had exchanged greetings with the Count, he joined Natasha, and followed her into the room. The moment she saw him she was assailed, just as she had been at the theatre, by a mixed sense of gratified vanity that she pleased him, and of fear, because of the absence of moral barriers between him and her. Ellen received Natasha effusively, and was loud in praise of her beauty and her toilette. Soon after their arrival, Mademoiselle Georges retired from the room to change her costume. In the meantime, chairs were disposed in the drawing-room, and the guests began to take their seats. Anatole procured a chair for Natasha, and he was just going to sit next to her, but the Count, keeping sharp eye on his daughter, took the seat next to her. Anatole sat behind. Mademoiselle Georges, with plump and dimpled arms all bare, and with a red shawl flung across one shoulder, came out into the space around which the chairs were ranged, and assumed an unnatural pose. A murmur of admiration was heard. Mademoiselle Georges threw a stern and gloomy glance around, and began to recite certain lines in French, in which the guilty love of a mother for her son is delineated. In places she raised her voice, then again she spoke in a whisper, triumphantly tossing her head, and in other places she broke short off, or spoke in deep, hoarse tones, rolling her eyes. Adorable, divine, délicieux were the acomiums heard on all sides. Natasha's eyes were fastened on the stout actress, but she heard nothing, saw nothing, understood nothing of what was going on before her. She felt that she was irrevocably drawn again into that strange, mad world, so far removed from the past world, where it was impossible to know what was right and what was wrong, what was reasonable and what was foolish. Behind her sat Anatole, and she was conscious of his nearness, and with terror awaited some development. After the first monologue, the whole company arose and crowded around Mademoiselle Georges, expressing their delight and enthusiasm. "'How beautiful she is,' said Natasha to her father, who had got up with the rest and was starting to push his way through the throng toward the actress. "'I cannot think so when I look at you,' said Anatole, sitting down next to Natasha. He spoke so that no one else could hear what he said. "'You are charming. Since the first moment that I saw you I have not ceased.' "'Come, let us go, Natasha,' interrupted the Count, returning to his daughter. "'How pretty she is!' Natasha, making no reply, followed her father, but gave Anatole a look of wondering amazement. After several more recitations, Mademoiselle Georges took her departure, and the Countess Buzakaya invited her guests into the ballroom. The Count wanted to go home, but Ellen begged him not to spoil her improvised ball. The Rostovs remained. Anatole took Natasha out for a valse, and while they were on the floor, and he clasped her waist and hand, he told her that she was revisante, and that he loved her. During the Ecoles, which she danced with Kurrigan also, 
Anatole said nothing to her while they were by themselves, but merely gazed at her. Natasha was in doubt whether she had not dreamed what he said to her during the valse. At the end of the first figure he again pressed her hand. Natasha lifted startled eyes to his, but his look and his smile had such an expression of self-confidence and flattering tenderness that she found it impossible to look at him and say to him what was on her tongue to say. She dropped her eyes. "'Do not say such things to me. I am betrothed. I love another,' she hurriedly whispered. She glanced at him. Anatole was not in the least confused or chagrined at what she had said. "'Don't speak to me about that. What difference does it make to me?' he asked. "'I tell you, I am madly, madly in love with you. Am I to blame because you are bewitching? It's our turn to lead.' Natasha, excited and anxious, looked around with wide, frightened eyes, and gave the impression of being gayer than usual. She remembered almost nothing of what took place that evening. While they were dancing the Ecolais and the Grossvater, her father came and urged her to go home with him, but she begged to stay a little longer. Wherever she was, whomever engaged her in conversation, she was conscious all the time of his eyes upon her. Afterwards she remembered asking her father's permission to go to the dressing-room to adjust her dress, and how Ellen followed her, and told her with a laugh that her brother was in love with her. She remembered how, in the little divan-room, she had again met Anatole, how Ellen had suddenly disappeared, leaving her alone with him, and how Anatole, seizing her hand, had said in a tender voice, "'I cannot call upon you, but must I never see you? I love you madly, desperately. Can I not see you?' And then, blocking her way, he had bent down his face close to her face. His great, gleaming, masculine eyes were so near to her face that she could see nothing else except those eyes of his. "'Nathalie?' She heard his voice whisper, with a questioning inflection, and her hand was squeezed almost painfully. "'Nathalie?' "'I do not understand at all. I have nothing to say,' said her glance. His glowing lips approached her lips, but at that instant she felt that her deliverance had come, for the sound of Ellen's footstep and the rustle of her dress were heard in the room. Natasha glanced at Ellen. Then, blushing and trembling, she gave him a terrified, questioning look, and started for the door. "'Un mot, un seul, un nom de Dieu,' said Anatole. She paused. She felt that it was necessary for her to hear that single word, which would afford her an explanation of what had happened, and allow her something tangible to answer. "'Nathalie, un mot, un seul,' he kept repeating, evidently not knowing what to say, and he repeated it until Ellen came close to him. Ellen and Natasha returned together to the drawing-room. Declining the invitation to stay to supper, the Rostovs went home. That night Natasha could not sleep at all. She was tormented by the question which she could not answer, which she loved, Anatole or Prince Andrei. She loved Prince Andrei. She had a very distinct remembrance of how warmly she loved him. But she loved Anatole also. There could be no doubt about that. Otherwise, how could all of this have taken place? she asked herself. If it was possible for me, on saying good-bye to him, to answer his smiles with smiles, if I could permit myself to go so far, then of course I was in love with him at first sight. He certainly is good, and noble, and handsome, and it is impossible not to be in love with him. What can I do when I love him, and love the other, too? she asked herself, and found no solution to the vexing problem. End of chapter 13